Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. Those are verses 16 through 18 of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, June the 10th, 2021. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm your host. I appreciate you being along today. And we're continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiasticus, or which is the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Uh, also in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 11 to 21, and, and the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. The um, Ecclesiasticus reading, remember I mentioned some of this yesterday, that I'll give you a quick summary of what that book is. It's not, it's not the book of Ecclesiastes. It's uh, a book called Ecclesiasticus in some places, but then the wisdom of Ben Sirah in others. It's a book that we as Protestants, at, at the, well, as Anglican Protestants, because most Protestants don't recognize it at all, we, we would call it an apocryphal book, which means that it um, is not, no doctrine can be derived from reading it. And so it's, it's basically essentially something we think is... Um, is worthy of uh, Christians to read. It's, it's almost like a recommended <laughs> kind of a reading. Um, and, it, and in the Catholic Roman Catholic world, it, it's actually in the canon of Scripture that they recognize. Uh, it is not in the Jewish canon at all. It, it was written about 180-ish AD, or BC, sorry. And then there's a prologue written by Ben Sirah's um, grandson about 55 years later in 125 um, and and he in that listed the um, these are Jewish scholars obviously it's before Christ so um, it was it, he listed the books of the canon and did not include this in it but he did include all the books that we know as the Old Testament and so most of it is is like pro- proverbs there's a lot of uh, sayings and wisdom sayings like that so it, it has it, it and but it here in this part we're in right now begins with let us now praise famous men and so what it's doing is is recounting the the glory uh, days of Israel and it's and the the men and women who shaped uh, the the culture and who held together the nation religiously so the today we're looking at Aaron um, he exalted Aaron a holy man like Moses who was his brother of the tribe of Levi, and he made an everlasting covenant with him and gave him priesthood of the people. He blessed him with stateliness and put a glorious robe on him, and he clothed him in perfect splendor and strengthened him with the symbols of authority. And then he goes on and talks about the vestments that, that Aaron wore that gave him that authority. And they talk about the beauty of all of those things. And then goes on to get to the end of it, said, before him, such beautiful things did not exist. No outsider ever put them on, but only his sons and his descendants in perpetuity. His sacrifices shall be con- wholly burned twice every day continually. Moses ordained him and ordained him with holy oil, anointed him with holy oil. Sorry, It was an everlasting covenant for him and for his descendants as long as the heavens endure to minister to the Lord and serve as a priest and bless his people in his name. He chose him out of all the living to offer sacrifices to the Lord, incense and a pleasing odor as a memorial portion to make atonement for the people. And so there's this um, sort of aura about Aaron in this writing. And and I find it a little bit amusing, to be honest with you, is in all three of these readings, there's this one little theme that runs through there. And 
and that is, whether it's hidden or whether it's it's out there in the open, and and that is is that um, in Aaron's time there were multiple challenges to his leadership and to his priesthood. Uh, the challenge of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and others to Aaron being set up as priest. I mean, after all, he failed the nation <laughs> after the episode with the golden calf. I mean, he's the one who made the golden calves. And so he, he failed the nation and failed God in that. But God forgave him and, and allowed him to continue to have that role among the people. But, but he was not particularly popular always in his own lifetime. Um, he also challenged Moses. He and his sister Miriam challenged their brother Moses and his particular ability to have authority over the people of Israel. And for that, Miriam became leprous for a season of time. And so Aaron's life is, is, is not all you know covered in glory, nor was he covered in glory by the people of God all the time. And so there's this, there's a th- there's something that that happens, and and it, whenever you're in any kind of a leadership role in the church, whether it's an ordained role or some other role, that there's always going to be detractors, right? There's always going to be people who who don't have the best things in the world to say about you, and who want to challenge your leadership, uh, just as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram challenged the leadership of Aaron, in spite of the fact that God had made it clear that He had chosen Aaron, but but they didn't believe that, and so they challenged that authority and paid the price for it. Um, for their challenge against God's anointed. And, and people continue, though, to come against God's anointed again and again and again. I've never been in a church, ever, where the uh, leadership wasn't attacked by some group or faction of the people. I, I was in a um, denomination that was torn apart by this very thing of uh, people being jealous of the anointed leader. And it, and it didn't turn out well for the person who challenged. It turned out okay for a lot of the people who, who rode along his train. But the reality is is that, that there's always going to be challenges to leadership. It, it's, a, it's never an easy thing to be a leader in the kingdom. Um, it, it's funny because Jesus talks about they're going to persecute you just the way they persecuted me. And, and what he's talking about is religious people. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about outsiders to the church. He's talking about people in the church where the persecution comes from. It's it's, uh, people who are also Christians are going to come after you. And that's what we see in Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians there. He's defending his leadership. In this passage from Luke, this gospel passage, Jesus comes into town, right? He's in Jerusalem, and he's come in, and and he he came in and is acclaimed as king by the people. And then the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, want to shut that down because they're experiencing... um, freedom to lead the people and they like their positions and they're afraid those positions are going to be taken away one way or another they 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 tell jesus to tell his followers to be quiet and jesus says no if they're quiet then the rocks will cry out because this moment is ordained in time and and so they're concerned that the romans will get upset is actually what's going on there they're concerned the romans will get upset and take their place from them that the if Jesus stepped into the and was the kind of Messiah that they wanted, you know, the sort of this military commander and king who comes and takes over, then that would be okay. But he's coming in not that way. He came in on the foal of a donkey. Well, that was in uh, keeping with the prophecy of Zechariah that that's exactly how a Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And so when, when he comes in and after this, <coughs> as he's near the city, he weeps over it. 
saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this first statement here, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, that's why they want the followers of Jesus who are acclaiming him as king as he comes into the city. That's the reason that they want this them to be quiet, is they want to ex- continue to experience the what's known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because you've got this mighty empire that comes in and imposes peace in all the places in the empire. It allows religious beliefs to be, it tolerates certain religions, and those are called licit religions, which means they're allowed by Rome, and, and so they have the ability to worship uh, and use the temple and all those kinds of things, and, and for them that's peace. But Jesus is coming and, and offering a much greater peace than the peace that Rome can afford. And it's not based on military might, though. It's based in the loving rule and reign of God. He says, you don't even know the things that make for peace. You believe that you're experiencing peace, and, and, and it is peace of a kind, and it's peace in the world. But the reality is Jesus has offered so much more than that, and you're rejecting it because it's hidden from your eyes. You're not seeing this thing. You didn't know the time of your visitation. What was possible in this moment was beyond your reckoning and imagination, and you missed it because you didn't recognize him. And, and it's a painful thing to think back and, and think the world that we live in is, is at least in part due to the rejection of Jesus. This world could be so much better if he had been uh, acclaimed as Messiah and seated on that throne forever. As it is, he's seated on the heavenly throne, and so he's still in charge. And he was in charge this day. I mean, this is all according to the will of God. God knew that they were going to reject him. Jesus knew that. That's the reason he continually talked about his crucifixion. And then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. When Jesus goes into the temple, he sees the sellers of sacrificial animals there. And, and so they're selling these things at a premium. So the, the, it's a pilgrim festival. You got these people coming from all parts of the world. All the Jewish diaspora are coming to Jerusalem in accordance with the commandment to do so. And so as they come there, one of the things they have to do when they come into Jerusalem at the festival is to, to offer, make sin offering and thank offerings. And so they could bring your own stuff, your own sacrifices, but the problem is that, that you don't know whether those are going to be deemed acceptable by the priests who have to inspect them and determine that they are completely without blemish. So a better plan is go ahead and buy them when you get there. And, and these sellers of sacrificial animals are selling those things that have already been approved by the priests. And so you can know that this thing's already sanctioned. And so you're going you're gonna to pay a premium, certainly, for it. But nonetheless, it'll work. And so it's a cynical way of making money off people who are coming to offer sacrifices to God to do an upcharge on this thing. And, and you know, you can pretty well bet that there was a, a little bit of skimming going on in the background, too. You know, hey, if you'll certify these things now, then I'll give you a kickback. And so 
the Jesus drives them out of the temple for two reasons. One of which is this is um, they're becoming a den of robbers. But the other thing is that it is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. And so what they did during the pilgrim festivals is they set these um, booths or whatever up in the what's known as the court of the Gentiles, which is where the rest God proclaimed. They couldn't come any closer, but they could hear the teaching that went on there. But because they'd set up these booths, there's no way for the Gentiles to hear this. And so they're keeping people, they're keeping the outside world, including the Romans, from actually hearing this peace that he offers that's greater than anything the world can offer. And so he's rejected. Jesus is. I mean, if they reject Jesus, they're sure going to reject you. Um, And then in this 2 Corinthians passage, Paul just says, hey, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The sign of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so Paul says, you saw, you didn't just hear me speak, which you didn't apparently appreciate very much because I'm not that great a speaker, but you also saw signs and wonders. And so what's the deal there? Why would you reject me as your leader? Because these other people come and they're more eloquent and they're preaching a false gospel. He says, so here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I won't be a burden. I seek not what is yours, but you. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I'll gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And so his argument here is is that that I, I love you so much that I didn't charge you a nickel for any of the things that I did. And you saw a demonstration of the signs and wonders, not just eloquent wisdom. And that's what he's argued from the beginning in his letters to the Corinthians is that I'm not trying to take you away with empty philosophy, and none of you are philosophers anyway, um, but you you like that high, lofty, and eloquent language no matter what it says. You just prefer that. It tickles your ears, and so you're happy about that. He said, look, I sent other people to you as well, and, and I didn't ask you for anything for them either. I loved you. It was as simple as that. I didn't charge you. I did what I did simply out of love for you, and you've been rejecting me in favor of these others who have come. And he said, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. Paul doesn't really have high hopes for his next visit for the Corinthians, does he? It seems like he's not expecting them to actually be walking with the Lord. And, and the reason would be that these super apostles have come, and, and they've shared a similar message to what was shared with the people John writes to in First John, and that is, is that the body itself is, is of no value, and it's of no meaning, ultimately. And so sins of the body are not important at all. And that's a lie. Because it's the lie that's overthrown by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a lie that's exposed by the incarnation of Jesus. That this body does indeed matter. This life does indeed matter. It's not just the crucifixion and the resurrection that matter, it's the life, it's the incarnation.
It's the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Was it pains to prove that, right? I mean, he offered them to come and touch him, put their hands in his side, and then he ate fish with them. And so the, the body matters. And, and But we, we can get this idea that, that that's not really all that important as long as I protect the soul. And I don't know how you divide those two things because I don't think we're able to divide those two things. But if you're in leadership or if you've been in a leadership role and received the slings and arrows of being in that place, just know that you're in good company. All three of the men that we looked at here today were certainly those who suffered during their lifetimes and are now thought of incredibly highly for who they are and what they did.